0: G'day everyone, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host Tiffany Cook and today my guest is the wonderful Felix Kostuke. In September 2018, on a wall-to-wall charity motorcycle ride with his father Victor, an alcohol and ice-affected driver, Jesse Reed sped recklessly around the corner and fatally struck Victor, narrowly sparing Felix. And today's conversation is a testament to how Felix has navigated this time, how he's managed grief, PTSD, fatherhood, and the complexities that an experience like this brings. I think it's an incredible, raw, and honest conversation. Thanks, Felix. Felix Kostuke, welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Good, good. How are you?
0: I'm good. Do you want to tell everyone how long you just had to train me on how to say your very simple, very pronounceable last name?
1: I could say it was 45 minutes, but probably closer to about two or three, I'd say. It's
0: a bit embarrassing though, isn't it? Because I still almost, after all that, I almost stuffed it up.
1: And most people still get it wrong after knowing me for 20, 30 years. That's fine. We're used to it.
0: I don't feel so bad then. This is why I call everyone mate. So thanks for, for coming to chat, mate.
1: That's all right. That's all right. How are, just- are you? Yeah, good, good. Life's busy, frantic, which sort of keeps us keeps us going and, you know, prevents you from having to try and think about who you actually are, but no,
0: good. <laughs> That's about, yeah, I, I look, I totally relate to that. I totally relate. We are brought together to chat today through our mutual friend, the wonderful Mark Thomas.
1: Mr. Thomas himself.
0: Always introduces me to superstars and... As I do, I thought I'll go and do a little bit of reading about this young Felix character. I'll go and uh, see what I can see what I can find out and I have to say that I have spoken to personally 700 guests. So I've done 700 episodes and my show, my own show is called Roll with the Punches and then of course conversations with Code 9. We talk about some heavy stuff and some big experiences and so, I'm well accustomed to it, but I would have to say that just reading a few of the articles online about what you've been through and your story really hit some emotion in me like it really it was quite raw mm. how do you how do you feel about when you think about that these days today
2: it's
1: It's never really gone away um a lot of people would either think, oh, maybe it's been, because it's been five years, it's, you know, he should maybe be over it or not think about it as much, or some people are still on eggshells. But the reality of it is, it is my life. It's, you know, the moment I wake, the moment I go to sleep, it's part of who I am now, integral part. So I'm, I'm always quite open to talk about it because it's just what I live and breathe every day. I was on a course at the moment, started on Monday, and, I, through no fault of the instructors, he just sort of put me on the spot, and I kind of found myself having to introduce my situation to this course of twenty people I didn't know. Because he just said, "Oh, yeah, famous name, but yeah, 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 yeah." Apparently, one of the instructors said, "Oh, famous, really? Um, how so?" All right. Well, since we're all here, and so you just let rip with it, and all of a sudden you've got a, a room full of twenty stunned people who don't know what to say because it's. Um, unique.
0: Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Or maybe I should ask you rather than tell you how interesting it is and think you <laughs> might agree. <laughs> but I find it interesting when you share something quite vulnerable about yourself once, and you would be the same in in by way of you've spoken about this a lot. It's been in the media, you have spoken, you've been on trial, you've been on television. And so you're quite comfortable in the sharing of it. But when it comes to what you just described then of sharing it with people who, before you've even said it, are on the wrong track with why you might be about to share a famous story. Yeah. Is that does that unleash a new level of discomfort?
1: Um uh, yes and no. Like there's no discomfort about talking about it because it just is. I mean, I know I'm being quite vague, but it just is. Um, the only true discomfort comes in when you start to deal with the minutia of it or if someone were to really push a point mm. um, to just, you know, say, you know, how do you find Christmas now? Well, oh, shit house. Mm. Um, so it, it, that, that's when it starts to get a bit more difficult. But at that point, if someone's going to ask that kind of question, well, then I'm going to blindside them with the truth. I'm not going to dance around it. Yeah. Um, they can either acknowledge how difficult the truth is, or maybe acknowledge that their question might have been inappropriate, might have not been, I still have no issue giving it. Mm. I've got nothing to be ashamed about what I've been through. If someone were to criticize me or to judge me for what I've been through and how I've dealt with it, if they would have an issue with that, I don't want to know them because that says more about who they are than who I am. I'm very comfortable with how I've dealt with my experiences and very open with it because the risk of sounding a bit overconfident, I've done a very good job. Yeah. And <laughs> just still being here. Yeah. And I, I know that. So, yeah, there's there's no real issues with talking about it.
0: Oh, I love that. Now, by now, everybody listening will have – I will have introduced what we were talking about today and they would likely have already read the show notes that Mark writes. However, uh, perhaps you can give us a little – as much as you like to about, about what happened, about what we're talking about.
1: Oh, so – I'm in the police force. I've done 12 years now. Um, Both my parents did a long time. Mum did 35 years, Dad did 38. And we're all avid motorcyclists. Uh, We've been taking part in the wall to wall ride for Remembrance, raising money for police legacy for some time. I did my first ride in 2014, introduced Dad to it, who did it in 15. The three of us did it in 16. And then my wife came along, the four of us did it in 17. Fantastic ride. 2018, just dad and I. You know, it's the best time of the year. 14th of September, it's the event we all look forward to. We love it; it's fantastic. You know, four days away, up to Canberra and back. Just the best roads in the country. Until 2:18 p.m., we're riding along east of Orbost, uh, round a bend, and there's a car coming towards us uh, that probably shouldn't be. Um, we realised there's something seriously wrong here. Dad goes right, I go left because th- that was the only option we had. And by uh, by the grace of God, I am now here and he is not. Um. So the impact was pretty catastrophic. I think he was dead before he hit the ground. I don't know. If it wasn't, it would have been a matter of seconds. Certainly within a second or two of me getting to him pretty alone at that point you know middle of nowhere i then proceeded to get attacked by the offending driver who was quite drug affected and so that's while i'm trying to do cpr thankfully there being a police ride there were a lot of off duty police there and so he promptly gets taken away some people take over from me at which point i'm starting to make calls and everything and it was about an hour before dad was pronounced um, about another hour before I'm allowed to leave. And then the six hour drive home, being driven home by a senior sergeant, then being picked up by my boss, who he drove out to Morwell to pick me up and drove me the rest of the way to, you know, leave at 7 a.m. from mum and dad's house, come back at 10 p.m. in a police car, being greeted by mum and my wife, Nicole. And he's gone.
0: I just feel um, sick even hearing. And, and picturing that whole chain of events, I literally feel sick. Yeah. Um, and I'm so sorry that that this is your story mm. to tell.
1: There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> try as I might, try to rewind, try to change everything. Sorry, stiff shit. That's your life now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Such immense mm. trauma and, and and memories and what was... Who who made the call to tell mum and your, was it wife or partner?
2: My wife,
1: yeah. Wife. Um, I, I did. When in a time of crisis and chaos, I think this is part of my work mode coming in. I need to do something. doesn't matter what I have to do. I have to do something. So, for example, recently, you know, my son, this is just getting sidetracked, my son has febrile convulsions and he, he has seizures when he has a temperature. It's a whole thing. Not fun. But w- whenever he has one, I have to go into work mode and I need to do something. doesn't matter what I'm, what I'm doing. I just need to do something, whether it's me calling triple O, whether it's me recording the convulsion, or whether it's me getting the bag packed for the hospital, something like that, I need to do something. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I just wallow and flounder. So there I am, side of the road. They're now doing CPR. I need to do something. What can I do? So I start making phone calls straight away. Immediately. So I called mum straight away, then called Nicole. And then I've just started calling other people because I need to keep telling people. When I've run out of people to call, I've started taking notes because I could feel myself forgetting what was happening and then trying to do other things, calling people back, giving them updates, just anything to take me away from what's happening right there in front Mm -hmm. of me, to distract me, to move me away from it. Um, So everyone found out from me. Uh, such
0: an incredible, like so insightful to think about how you're, and, and a whole family of police officers. So,
2: yeah, three from three.
0: Yeah, it's very, you, you would have some very practical transferable skills that would have just kicked in and even even for the people, the first people that you had to call and tell.
1: And that was, yeah, that was very much a big part of how unique my circumstances are. Because I absolutely have one foot on either side here. I am a victim in every sense of the word, victim of a crime, and I'm an investigator, and I know them both well. Yeah. And it's not really good at one and had some involvement in the other. or It's 50-50 split. I'm both. I'm mm-hmm. living two lives here at the same time, living the life of a victim of a violent, serious crime, and while still being an investigator, being a copper.
0: What was the experience like in the middle of that? Were you, how did it feel? Did it feel different than you expected it to? Did it shift how you would normally operate it from the investigation side of things, or did did everything just kind of land that way?
1: That's a good question. Um They say the worst patients are doctors. Um, I think it's probably similar for coppers. And I was was trying really hard to not be a bad, hard victim. I don't don't, don't really know. Um, I was... Yeah, I was acutely aware that I had an insight into what they were doing at the time throughout the investigation process. So the... The vague thing they might tell me, I know what's really going on behind the scenes. Or for the whole um, discussion about, is there going to be an autopsy? Is there not going to be an autopsy? I mean, no one wants their family to have one. But when you've physically been in the room when one's been conducted, you know just how brutal and violent they are. So that, for us to not have to have one, was incredible. It was the biggest weight I think I've ever had taken off my shoulders in my life when we get the call to say no autopsy. Oh, it's just glorious. So, I I deliberately gave the investigators a bit of a wide berth because I know how much I haven't liked those victims who haven't understood the process or who through no fault of their own actually create more work because they, they require a lot more coverage and a lot more Management that it prevents you from focusing on prosecuting the offender, which is the priority. Um, so I did take a bit of a back step, but at other times I have been probably a bit more overbearing, requiring, I yes. guess. Because-
0: I'm going to be that with my next question. Like- in terms of the the autopsy, uh, in your like, it sounds like <laughs> there was a there was a time where that was. Probably, like that was a possibility, and for me, Mm -hmm. hearing about what happened, I mean, it it doesn't feel feel like anyone needs an autopsy to know what's happened. We all saw it,
1: (laughs) and and I think that that's what it came down to. Yes. So we we did um, we did say, look, if there's going to if there has to be an autopsy, we will consent to it because if the autopsy is the difference between a finding of guilt and this idiot getting off, then. Of course, autopsy. Because that's that's not here anymore. That he's gone. it's more just the desecration, for lack of a better term, of what we knew him to be.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so we we pretty much said we really don't want one. We hope reason can prevail here. But if there has to be one, there has to be one. And reason did prevail. And thankfully I think the cause of death was written down as um combination of injuries sustained as a motorcyclist in a collision. Like
0: it, it. Yeah. In a I guess, what would a cause of death be that would lighten a sentence or or get in the way of a sentence?
1: Just like a purely hypothetical. Yeah. Um, if perhaps there was an underlying medical condition that made death much more of a I guess almost a sure thing. Like, if there was maybe, let's say there was, you know, there was an old couple in a car, someone's crashed into them, but turns out one of them has had a heart attack in the immediacy before. Well, has there actually been a fatal collision here? Or has there just been a crash and someone's died at that time? Or, for example, a a job I went to a long time ago, there was an, I was one up at this job. It was the most bizarre thing I came across it. It was a, an ambulance had crashed into a cow at hundred kilometers an hour. And then a truck had hit about five cows jackknifed and moved off. So as I rocked up, I called out to one of the ambos, the cars smashed me. I asked him, how bad is it? He said, I'm okay. My offside has got a broken. They've got a guy in the back. Who's dying. There's a woman in that car. Who's giving birth at the moment. She's in labor. And I don't know about the truck driver. <laughs> I'm Whoa. one o'clock at night, princess Greenway in Morwell. And I chat myself, but, um, Turns out that old man in the back of the ambulance—he was already dying. So they were frantically trying to get him to the hospital. So would his death be caused as part of the collision, or would it just be an underlying medical condition that's, you know, happened at the same time? So it's sort of where that comes in. I think, well, dad was operating a motorbike at 100 kilometres an hour, quite reasonably, up until two seconds beforehand. Yeah. Why do we need an autopsy?
0: Yeah. Wow. Would you be okay if I read a little bit of from Please. one of the articles of Please. things that, that you'd said? I think yeah. this was 2019 because sure. this, this reading this felt a lot to me. Mm. So some of your responses were, it is burned in my mind and I can never forget it. Watching the life go from his eyes, Felix said in a victim statement to the court that day, my mum has lost her soulmate and I have seen her destroyed. I was forced to watch my father die, and now I have to watch my mother die a slow death. I was only one metre from being the second person killed that day, but I have stopped caring. I've got goosebumps right now, by the way. I wish I was dead. Instead, I am left to suffer in this purgatory. My life is utter blackness because of you. Remember my name because you have all but killed me. Goosebumps all over my face. (laughs) And and I love that that is forever on the internet for mm. Jesse to review when he's able to come out and surf mm. the internet and know that. How do you feel now about that?
2: Um
1: that, that's that quote there, because that's from yes, yeah, from a news article. That's the paraphrasing. There's a lot more in that. Uh they took, you know, first half of that sentence, then I did a tiny uh, bit there. Yeah, but it's essentially as
0: right. they do. <laughs> essentially, all right.
1: Um, yeah, I I remember when I wrote that, I was sitting in my car, um, just stopped at a footy oval, just writing it on my phone. Mm. Um, well, I'm 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 not at the point where I wish I was dead now. No, a lot's happened. In mm-hmm. the last four years, so that was I think eleven months after the crash. That was um, so. The crash was September eighteen. Sentencing was August nineteen. I think and the, and the passenger got sentenced in twenty, maybe. Um, and my daughter was born December twenty twenty. My son Feb twenty two. A lot has changed. Yeah. That being said, like yes, I absolutely have a reason for living now. Anything like that. Doesn't make it easy. And I still get so angry when the little joys that I should otherwise have of being a young father are tainted. Mm. For instance, there are a lot of the PTSD sort of stuff that I've dealt with, I've semi-resolved, is probably the best way I can put it. It doesn't affect me constantly. Uh, but there are a few things that are just absolute triggers. One of them, for example, is if someone's be lying on the ground with their face on the side. Obvious reasons. Mm. And when I'm getting my daughter ready for bed, I'm in her room at the moment, um, when I'm getting her ready for bed and she's just playing and she'll go, look, daddy, and she's lying on the ground on her side. And she's a two-year-old child. She's just playing. I, I adore this child. i die for her. And I just want to play with her. But in that moment, all I feel is terror. Oh. And I'm not, I am being robbed of things that are just being given to me. It's not like the theft has occurred and it's done. I'm still having things stolen from me every single day things that I should be able to enjoy, things that should be the reason for living. And it is such a shame. But I can't write that in another victim impact, victim impact statement because it's done, it's a court. He, he'll be getting out soon. Um, so that's just for me to deal with for the rest of my life.
0: PTSD is, is such a... Such a beast of a thing, and like, how has it, how has it been to navigate that for yourself?
1: Hard, um, of course. I've, um, I've got a, I guess one of my skills is introspection. I'm very good at seeing myself from that outside perspective yeah. um, and seeing how I'm dealing with something. Um, I had a bit over a year off work. And I spent that year sitting on the couch, probably watched two and a half thousand movies. And I'd spend every day, I'd try to go out for about two hours a day, just go for a walk, slight drive, something like that, just to get out of the house. And I was acutely aware of every single trigger, the things that were too much for me at the moment, things that might not be, and also how that gradual exposure was helping me as well. So I could, for instance, I was down at a park in Frankston, and the Highway Patrol were doing a um, doing a, a PBT site, and there were some police motorbikes there. Now I had not seen a police motorbike since the crash. Why should I think all of a sudden that a police motorbike is going to be another trigger? But of course mm. it is. Mm. So I'm I'm just staring at it. And I'm trying to expose myself to it because I'm in the position now. I can deal with this. It's not too much for me at the moment. It'll be a lot and it'll probably knock me out for a few days, but I can expose myself to it in a controlled environment. So I'm looking at the police bike and I see the cop is sort of staring at me a bit. Oh, who's this random guy in trackies who's just staring at my motorbike. And I put myself in his perspective and thought, who is this idiot? <laughs> Get now, yourself got, arrested in a minute. Yeah, I need to tell him what's going on. So <laughs> I went up to him and I said, look, FYI, mate, you remember the crash last year. Yeah, that was me. I'm just so you know, I've got some issues. I'm trying to sort of expose myself to this a little bit. Dear mind. Like I'm not, I don't need to touch your bike. It's just me looking at it. I don't want you to think I'm weird. I'm not weird. I've just got PTSD. Um, and so I probably spent half an hour. He was amazing. Mm. We had a good chat. But I was able to expose myself to it in that controlled environment. Also, there's the sense of knowing the um, the good days and the bad days and that they come in waves. You know, you'll have a day where you're getting better and you're thinking, this is all right. You'll have a good day thinking, I might be getting pretty good at this. And then, oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. No, no, no. And then three days of horrendous. And then it comes out of that and rinse, repeat. And I was able to really see that from that outside perspective quite obviously that, well, I'm having a really bad day today, but four days ago, I was all right. And 10 days ago, I was all right. Hmm, Okay. So I I remembered back to there's an old story about King Solomon gave his best philosopher a challenge to find him something to make him happy when he's sad and sad when he's happy. And the philosopher came back with a ring, and on it, the ring said, this too shall pass. And it was absolutely fitting.
2: Mm.
1: It was, and so when I'm having a good day, well, this too shall pass. Enjoy today because there are probably going to be a few bad ones coming up. And on those horrendous days where you just want to die, this too shall pass. There are good days coming up. And the fact that there are going to be more bad days, that's okay. Okay we'll deal with them on the day. The good days, we take advantage of them on the day. And that's essentially been my journey. The waves started like 20-minute waves and they just gradually, as time went on, they just stretched out and stretched out. And now I'll have a good few weeks and then a bad week, you know, but this too shall pass. And it's a, yeah, it's a good way of just... Keeping real.
0: That's the first time I have pondered that quote, and and really, and I think a lot of people are the same. We like we're like up to wheel that out just in the bad times, don't we? And it's I think in the yeah, That's I think it's quite beautiful that you you actually in the moment and right now can bring that perspective of in and from a positive point, like enjoy this, like mm. be here, be present acknowledge it because we never do
1: mm. we never yeah. do it's um no it's been absolutely crucial for me to really genuinely enjoy myself to on one of those good days to just look back and go where have I come from right now how far have I come look I'm actually laughing I'm smiling I'm having a good time tomorrow might be fucked <laughs> or perhaps let's say I'm you know, out with some friends, you know, having a good time, no worries at all, then the car's going to come through the fence and kill one of us. Enjoy what I've got now because I can't control if a car's going to come through that fence and tomorrow might be the worst day of my life. So it's really, yeah, appreciate the moments you have because they are fleeting and we're not owed anything in life. People have, you know, go through their life going, no, 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 we're supposed to be happy, we're supposed to have a good time. No, we're not. Not even supposed to survive. Okay. Um, you know, any happiness you have is done through your own good work. And so enjoy it when you
2: have it.
0: Was it made like the idea, and you've got so many layers of this, the layers of it, it didn't just happen to you, it happened to your to your whole family. Hmm. And it didn't just happen to you, but it happened to your colleagues. Hmm. And it didn't just happen to you, but it happened to our state to to our country to like it was in the media so everybody was exposed to this so then your identity was this thing and how what was it like being in the middle of that where where you are this the one who is in need of the support but the one who is then kind of supporting and how did you manage supporting yourself and supporting others or allowing people to support you
1: um I pushed a lot of people away. Um, I I get this from my mum. We just knuckle down. We just deal with it. I'll deal with it myself. I'll deal with it myself. I mean, there was medical assistance and everything. That's a different story. Um, But I didn't see a lot of my friends for a long time. Um, But it very much came down to the little triangle of me, my wife, and my mum. We were the three people the most affected, and we needed to get each other through it and I needed the most help because mum and Nicole, no, nothing against what they have been through. You know, they have their own PTSD from the whole process, from the phone calls, everything, um, but they weren't there. And they're acutely aware of this, that, oh. that they are dealing with grief and a traumatic series of circumstances, but I'm dealing with primarily with trauma. And a behind-the-curtains look, knowing what's going on with all those people in the uniforms dealing with it and in the grief spot on top. And so I got more help from them than I gave them. But at the same time, we all helped each other and we all had different good days and bad days. We probably didn't have a good day that matched up for a long time. Um, but it was... It was difficult, though, because I, let's say if Nicole is struggling, my priority is helping her, 100%. Nothing else matters. I need to help her. So that's not necessarily a good thing because I would be down in the pits. I would be, you know, pulled over on the side of the road, just the head butting, the steering wheel screaming. I look over and I see Nicole's crying because of how much I'm hurting. Immediately, it's like a vacuum cleaner's turned on. My tears go straight back up in and I just need help with call. And it, it meant I wasn't dealing with my own things. Hmm. So I very much had to deal with things myself alone and then get help when I needed it. And so I'd, I had to learn to call for it at the right time and not just have people flock to me. You know, I feel a hand on my shoulder. While I'm crying. Bang! I just stop. Doesn't mean I've dealt with it. It's still there. I've just stopped. Um, so it's made me very be very alone in how I deal with it. Hmm. But that's just me. But like, that's a intricacy of me. It's not how everyone else deals with it. Um, I just I, I I need to help Nicole. I need to help Mum. And, well, what's going on with me? That doesn't matter. That can, that can be dealt with later. Um, I have no idea if that answered your question.
0: No, it did. And I often talk about and, and I'm curious around for all first responders, police, paramedics, this tendency that the job requires that you need, you need to be able to suppress your, your emotions mm. to deal with what you're in the middle of. And so you're you already have a level of hardwiring yeah, and absolutely. and proficiency of doing that, and then layered on top of that is you realizing in those moments that that it was then appropriate for you to do that to to help up, to help your loved ones. How did you manage, and did you get aware of that? How did you manage coming out of that so that it wasn't detrimental?
1: Um, it, it wasn't a conscious thing it was very much subconscious yeah. um, I wanted to be able to keep her, but I couldn't it was giving myself the time to be able to deal with it later or locking myself away to deal with something so up until we had our kids every year on the anniversary they didn't see me I locked myself away and I dealt with it that day
2: mm-hmm.
1: that was my day Um, Other days were harder for different people. The hardest day for Nicole is Christmas. The hardest day for mum is their wedding anniversary. So, uh, but the anniversary of the crash is 100% my hardest day.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I no longer have the luxury of locking myself away now that we've got kids. But I would, yeah, I would almost remove myself and take time to remove myself to be able to deal with it myself. And as my life has gotten busier now with kids. Now it's no longer, I'm just going to go into the bedroom for an hour or go down to the garage or something like that. Now it's, they may not know that I'll just pull over on the side of the road somewhere, you know, on the way home, maybe take 20 minutes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, I just have to try and take that breath myself and that they know that it's not that I'm, that I'm alone and I can't get any help and I don't feel supported because I absolutely do. We've just, through trial and error, realised that by them trying to help me doesn't actually help. What I need is space to deal with it myself.
2: Yeah.
1: Initially, though, like I don't want people to think that that's the best way to deal with it because people need help. And for a long time I was getting that help. But I've now become because it was quite significant. I through a lot of time dealing with it. So proficient in dealing with it myself that, you know, they have the utmost confidence in me to go, all right, Felix is doing it hard, but he'll be okay. He knows what to do. It's yeah. I've got the tools, I've got the skills, I've got the experience, I will deal with it. And they trust me with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Was it conflicting or is it conflicting celebrating these really amazing times of your life like the births of your children when someone's not around that should be to celebrate it? Is that something that comes up in those moments?
2: Yeah, they sucked. Absolutely sucked.
0: And for people who are listening who who would feel the same but don't have, I guess, the family around them that that have the understanding and insight and experience that yours do, do you have any advice for uh, like making space for that and helping with that?
1: I mean, the communication is important. Um, I've dealt with a few people that have tried to help, but in their own way of trying to help, have actually caused more damage. Yep. And um, when they cause the damage, and they would they would feel horrible if they did. Um. But them causing the damage doesn't benefit anyone. And it only causes you to know, har- harbour a bit of a resentment towards them. And to tell them that what they're doing isn't helping is a difficult conversation. But difficult conversations are probably the most important ones to have. Um, yeah. you know, a conversation about just how good you've been, it's, yeah, boosts morale, boosts motivation, no worries at all. But a difficult conversation about how to improve, how for, how can we as a unit, you know, myself and you get better at this. So we are at our best and we get exactly what we need. It's that conversation. Mm. Except there are some family members that might not accept that kind of conversation because a lot of people aren't as good at communicating
2: Mm.
1: since learned. Um, But just for them to know what, what I, you just have to spell it out. What I need from you right now, please don't take this the wrong way. What I need from you right now is space. I don't need you here. I need you gone. I appreciate you trying to help me. I love the fact you're trying to help me. The best way for you to help is to go away. So, and detail it so they don't just think, you know, my life is better with you, not in the room. It's so I have the time to deal with it appropriately without my subconscious trying to make me just bury it down. And I I said this to Nicole, I said it to mum. I said, because you being here makes me need to help you. I I, I need you gone so I don't have to worry about you. You're out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Um, It'd be the same as if I was at a job, for example, like if I was at a, just for argument's sake, someone with a knife at a shopping centre, a supermarket, Easy job to deal with. But if I know Nicole and the kids are at the supermarket, how am I supposed to adequately deal with that person with the knife when I'm worrying about them? Mm -hmm. Um, I've had it with some kids who broke into a school and we actually happened to live on with that house backed onto that school at the time. And I was, the whole time, I was just scared that they were going to jump the fence into my house. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't able to deal with it appropriately. So it's just, I think I need your presence to be removed from this situation because you matter so much to me that I can't, I keep putting you first and I can't do that. I need to put myself first right
2: now.
0: That's so good. That's so brilliant. You're really, you're really good at articulating this. Was it therapy or counseling that allowed you to, to get some I guess some some skills around this or is this something that was quite innate that you could you could perceive and be in the middle of and and manage or a bit of both.
1: I don't really know because a lot of the therapy I had was around actual physical ways to deal with the trauma and the yes. PTSD symptoms. So the I did the EMDR which you asked me what it stands for I can't remember but it's a, you basically it's a weird thing in that you either watch something moving while you're trying to think about the traumatic event in like one-minute spells and it somehow rewires your brain. Mm-hmm. It worked for me to actually have impulses in my hands. I'd close my eyes and it just boom, 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 boom. boom. Um, that worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, along with different um, tactile ways to remain grounded when you find yourself being pulled away from reality back into that history, back yes. into the memory, to just, I'd, I'd be, I'd click. And like there was a thing last year um, where um, Nicole's parents saw me doing that because I was having a pretty bad time and they were wondering what's Felix doing? He's just walking around clicking and, and, just, and clapping. I'm just probably had an hour and a half straight until I couldn't move my fingers anymore. But I was just trying to stay present in the moment. Um, but in terms of the introspection, the ability to communicate, I wouldn't really say they came out through therapy. Um, I think I just had them. Mm. Um, I've been fairly privileged in my upbringing that I was given a lot of good tools um, through both parents. Being in the job as well, they they sort of developed those over their lives and put them on me. Um, I mean, by the time I was born, well, when I was born, Dad was at the Homicide Squad. I think mum, when she was on mat leave, got a senior sergeant's job. By the time I was at school, um, dad was a senior sergeant, mum was an inspector. And so they were both quite high performing from very early on, um, from when I was born. Um, so I already had, you know, 15 years of policing experience that they were both pushing into me <laughs> from me being a little goo goo baby. Um you know, one of the first conversations I ever remember them having with each other was talking about their um, their biannual um, weapons qualification, which is known as OST. And I think I was three in the back seat of the car, and I thought, "Why is it called OST?" I had no idea. Operational safety and tactics training—I thought it was something Australian-related, but they just all their policing experience was just, I guess, subconsciously pushed into me, and mm. I have
2: that ability
0: i guess that's Uh, really fortunate and and it's really yeah but it's it's such a like you're such an important resource after what you've been through to be able to talk about this because for other people that are dealing with ptsd or or dealing with trauma and, and experiences that reflect what you've been through That don't have that same skill set or experience or awareness to just to be able to process and hear what's what's been really pivotal in your ability to get through it. I think is so important.
1: I've um yeah I I, I'm starting to see myself as as a resource. You know I I am a tool. I have this knowledge and ability. Let me give it to others Mm -hmm. because others don't have it. I'm acutely aware that I am. I am nothing more than a series of fortunate and unfortunate events all together into one, but I've got my own 12 years of experience in the job. I've got a combined 73 from both my parents and I've got all of my own experience with trauma, which is not insignificant, um, all put together to be a form of subject matter expertise.
2: Um,
1: You know, I've, I've got the proven ability. I've come out the other end. I am now a functioning member of society again. I am back at work full-time, fully operational. I'm, and there's nothing to be taken away from the people who aren't able to get back to work because they may not have the skills that I have. And that's not their fault at all. Um, I have the utmost respect for them because they're trying their hardest. If they weren't, there's no reason for them not to try their hardest because it's their own livelihood, it's their own life that they're fighting for. And of course, they're going to fight as hard as they can. Mm. But if I have an ability to give them some of my knowledge and some of my skills, because I'm looking at them going, they're not doing what I did. Well, do they know how I actually was able to
2: Mm.
1: get better? Probably not because I don't know this person. Um, so how can I give this to them? How can I help them? Um, Because every person I see who gets so badly impacted, it's such a waste, such a loss that their whole livelihood is gone. Um, And it's not just them, it's their loved ones, spouse, family. It's all the experience they have at work that they won't be able to bring back to work. You know, you've got people who've done 35 years who just go, they're just done. And, you know, we'd kill for that experience at work or their experience out of work, anything. You know, it's just such a waste.
0: Was it ever a question in your mind that you might not go back to that career? Absolutely. To that? Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. How, how long it
0: did it take to deliberate and, and, and dip your toe in and know that that was going to be okay?
1: It was probably only a year ago I realised that I think I'm all right. And I've been back at work since the 30th of December, 2019. Wow. So, I was non-operational for a year. Um, so, 19 to 20. All of 20, I was non-operational. Part of it was part-time, moving back into full-time, then just test down. Yep. 21, I was operational but restricted. And then um, early 22, I was probably cleared uh, completely. Um, and it was probably only late last year because I'm still impacted by it at work. Absolutely, I am.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, events, you know, um, that previously I would find quite easy, like someone running away from me on night shift. and he runs away, he's chasing. Simple. But all of a sudden I find after he gets away that I'm doubled over with this, you know, my whole stomach is just spasmed up um, from the adrenaline dump and everything that previously wasn't there. I would be going, well, yeah, I'm operational, but should I really be doing this job now? And there was a long time before that as well. So, I mean, that that still goes on, but I've now gotten to the point where I just go, all right, I can deal with it. I can deal with it as a permanent limp, one would say, appropriately and move forwards. But there was a long time where I probably wasn't, yeah, I wasn't sure whether I would go back or not. Um, I got pushed into coming back. Um, At the time, I was thinking this is way too early. It's been a year. Like, No, no, no. But he actually, um, it it was the best thing that could happen because at that point, it had been a year and I needed some drive and some progression to latch on to the progression. And I certainly wasn't doing anything difficult when I got back to work. I was there for four hours twice a week and it was to do whatever I wanted to do. As much or as little as I wanted. Um, It was really put in my hands. And um, I would gradually build up the hours and then build up a day and shorten the hours again, gradually build them up and so on. But, but my first few weeks back at work, I was thinking, I'm not ready for this. I'm absolutely not ready for this. But I was just given and I'm aware that I'm not everyone has had the support that I've had as well with that. A lot of people have had quite restrictive return to works. So that haven't worked for them. And I think our organisation has so far to go with structuring return to works.
2: Yeah,
1: It's unless you've been through it yourself, you don't know how to give it to someone else. Mm. Um, and so I was quite fortunate in that I was just essentially allowed just here, yeah, I've got this, Felix, would you like to do it? Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. And so I pushed myself. Um and then I think it was five months before I was full-time, I think. Um, yeah, but it was very much like the whole time, it, going through all of that was, is this still the right thing for me? Is it not? When I was off work, am I ever going to go back to work? I don't know. When I first went back, to am thinking, oh, this isn't for me. No, 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 But what, do I, what else do I have? Like I'm a year 12 graduate, did a year of uni, joined at 19. What else do I do?
2: I don't know
1: so you know I got to the point where I've got got a house got kids I if I can do this job I need to do this job if I can find something else that pays a similar amount yeah, yeah I'll do that sure like I'm not I'm not wedded to the job mm. um, I'm uh, I, I I do feel like I would bit to certain people in the organisation for how they looked after me. But at the same time, I've also given a lot. So, yeah. But I don't have a specific um, loyalty to the organisation beyond, hey, they looked after me. Like I'll work hard while I'm here. If I'm not going to be here in 10 years, I'm not going to be here in 10 years. But I just don't have that safety net of maybe someone did a trade before they joined, they could go back to the trade.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, I don't have that. It's so, nice
0: to know that Eve, especially given that your whole family is has this background of policing, it's it's really nice to hear that there's there doesn't seem to be this this identity crisis within you. Like you realise that that Felix isn't just Felix the police officer.
1: No, and that was oh, we actually went through this a lot before the crash uh, when Mum retired in 2015. Yep, because a lot of people struggle when they mm. retire. Yeah because you've been a copper for 35 years and now all of a sudden you have to pay for public transport.
2: What? <laughs> oh,
1: we wouldn't get on it for free. Um, but the um, it was very important that we have a sense of identity outside of the job. I, like My employment is a very big part of who I am. I'm very proud of what I do. But the real Felix is not Felix the Copper. Felix is proud of the, you know, what he's given. And I'm proud of my achievements. But if you were to ask who is Felix, I'm just a nerdy kid who loves his children and likes riding motorbikes. That's me. Break it down. That is exactly who I am. I love my movies. I love my bikes. I love my kids. And then when I go to work, I put on a suit and I pretend to act professional. Um, (laughs) <laughs> there's there's no there's no real adulthood here, um, so I very much have kept, and it was reinforced when I was off work because boy, I might not go back to work. Mm. Um, was remember who you truly are, yeah, not who you are for eight hours a day,
2: yeah.
1: And a lot of people at work they they try to fit in and they try to go, oh, all the other coppers are acting like this, I'm going to act like this and be gruff much. And I tried that for a bit, but. I wasn't, didn't seem to be making too many friends. And I realised, well, it's not that they don't like me. They can just tell I'm trying to be someone I'm not.
2: Mm.
1: I'll just be myself. I'm Felix. I like movies. I like games. I like motorbikes. Hello. I'm also a detective. Hi. And they like me. All of a sudden, as soon as I was who I was and I, you know, listened to the Lord of the Rings soundtrack at work <laughs> and not a triple I am on, you know, <laughs> Less than 20. They liked me because, oh, Felix has just been Felix. Yeah, he's a bit weird. Um, So, yeah, keeping that sense of self, that sense of identity is absolutely crucial.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: And it helped me not be lost when I was off because I went back to being me. kind of forgot who Felix the Copper was and I had to find him again. (laughs) But, yeah, there's very much two me's there's work me and then there's real me.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. You're, you're, you're quite an astounding person. I'm, I'm really, I just want to say thanks for, for sharing what you did today and for being as graceful as you were with the questions that I asked it, you know, cause I, like I said, there's, there's not a lot of stories that, that evoke such rawness and for some reason yours does. And when I was, mm-hmm. when I was reading those statements from the internet and when I asked you some of the things I did, you know, I could feel my skin tingling with rawness. Like I just felt and, and, you know, it's just, thank you for sharing that.
2: Pleasure. Pleasure.
0: Did you have anything you wanted to do? Do you have socials or anything anywhere that you want people to, or anything you'd like people to support?
1: Um, not personally, I, I'm i just me, but, um, oh, look, like Mark, all the good work the Code 9 Foundation does is amazing. Um, you know, just trying to help those people who are on the sidelines trying to get back who may not be able to. Yeah. Um, police legacy is amazing. Um, they're not Victoria Police. They may be, you know, supported by Victoria Police, but they're not Victoria Police. Um and when you see the work that VPL do, when you see your friends at work who die, I've had friends die at work, and you see their children are being looked after and being taken on, you know, interstate trips and being made to feel part of the family. And when VPL say, see these coppers here that are trying to help, these, this was your dad, this was your mum. And they still feel part of the family. VPL is absolutely invaluable and I think each member gives like a dollar a fortnight, which is nothing. It's chump change. So anything, anything to VPL
0: would be perfect. Amazing. Well, I will I will pop that in the show notes. Hmm. So everybody, go and get around that, please.
1: Thank you. For a police legacy, they are the best. They didn't support there's no self-serving interests. The cull 25 and I was 26. I got nothing.
0: No trips for you, Felix. No No, no. trips for you.
2: No, no. He's too old.
0: (laughs) Well, all the very best. Keep keep on keeping on. You're amazing. Uh, We love you. Code 9 Foundation loves you. And everyone, thanks for listening. We will be back next time.
2: No worries. Thank you.